You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. appreciate songs like that, and, and I hope you realize that as we sang that song tonight, how the song is really about the, the communion service, and yet throughout that song, it was tying why we hunger and thirst for God back with the reality of Christ's suffering and death on the cross. And it kind of goes along with what I'm going to speak about tonight, because tonight's message is going to be called Reality Check. And I'm proposing to you that, that what we do as believers and how we worship and what we believe, it's not just an irrational belief that we carry, but it is reality. It's truth. And we cannot truly worship God the way we ought to, if we, separate those, if we separate those two things, if we don't think that what we believe is based in reality, then we're going to be doing this wrong. And this song did a great job of saying, we hunger and thirst for Christ, not just because it's a good philosophy, not just because it is a nice way of thinking, but because of the reality of His sacrifice for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. That it is a real thing that happened. Back in September of 1982, Sparks Magazine entitled an article, Faith is Madness. And in that article, they documented what the the Soviet Union position, the the now no longer existent Soviet Union position on religion. They said, belief in God is considered a delusion and it should be treated much like any other psychological delusion with medication and psychological treatment facilities. And so they went to the point where they'd say that believing that God exists makes you psychologically delusional, that you are insane, that you're crazy. Now, North America has stood in contrast to these communistic countries for a long time uh, because we have things like in our national anthem, may God keep our land. And we're next to the United States who has in God we trust on their currency or that we are created equal under God with unalienable rights Uh, in their Declaration of Independence. Those things have marked what it means to be a Canadian or an American for a long time. But I think we understand that in the last century, we've seen Canada and the United States, but we're going to specifically talk about Canada tonight, succumb to a lot of the, the same idea as what you find in its fruition in the Soviet Union, in those statements. And that is that religion is irrational that it's separate from reality, that to, to really believe in something, in a creator God that died on the cross and rose again 2,000 years ago is just an insane belief. We've seen that creep into our school system. We've seen that creep into the worldview of many people. Even those that do believe in something spiritual could never claim that there's exclusivity found in Christ, that there's one ultimate reality, that there's only one truth. We have this postmodern type of idea of what truth is, that everybody's entitled to their own truth. And it's a problem because that is not what's presented by God and His Word. There's more and more books written that support this, this new philosophy, that believing in God is delusional. Uh, you've probably heard of the God delusion written by Richard Dawkins. In the book, he writes, Science flies you to the moon. Religion flies you into buildings. 
And what he's trying to say there is just religion is crazy. It makes you do crazy things. Science is where it's at. Science is what's real. Science is, is how humanity progresses. He goes on to say, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even in perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And many books have followed. Christopher Hitchens wrote, God is not great. The title says it all. What he thinks about God. Although he doesn't believe in God, but, but the God that he doesn't believe in is not great. There's a book called The Atheist Universe, The Thinking Person's Answer to Christian Fundamentalism by David Mills. It was re- recently written. And another one called The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason by Sam Harris. And the list could go on and on and on about where the culture is at concerning what they believe about religion, what they believe about a belief in God and specifically Christianity. So what do we do as Christians? I think what many of us have done is that although we hold to our beliefs, although we personally believe in God, we become somewhat ashamed of our worldview. We buy into the idea that, that although what we believe is real for us and although we believe it you know, truly and, and we'll, we're willing to, to die for it personally in our own lives, that we have a reason to be ashamed of it when it comes to the world around us. Because the world around us tells us we're crazy. It says that religion is irrational, that faith is a cop-out, and so we're just ashamed to represent that, to say that that is the worldview that we carry. Unfortunately, I believe we have fallen prey to the notion that our beliefs are irrational, unreasonable, and maybe even false. And this is a problem. And this evening, we have the opportunity to open up the Word of God and see how Paul responds to the very same charge that his beliefs are irrational that they're crazy and paul responds with confidence and i hope that we leave tonight willing to engage our culture with confidence let's pray and then we'll get into the lesson father we love you lord we thank you for your word lord we thank you for truth that we can stand on lord that you, you have revealed yourself to us that we don't have to wonder what's true we don't have to make up truths that we can look to the Word of God and find it fully revealed to us. God, I pray that you'd help us tonight to um, consider how Paul engages the world around him, Lord, how he responds to the charge that he is crazy because of his beliefs. God, I pray that you'd help us to leave here encouraged and more confident in our faith and ready to be bold to engage people around us, our friends and our neighbors and our family who think that maybe we're a little bit crazy because of what we believe. God, I pray you'd give us courage and boldness um, to speak to them about the gospel. We love you, Father. Lord, we thank you that you have opened our eyes, that we understand the truth of the gospel, that we are your children. Lord, I pray you'd help us not to be ashamed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 26 in just a moment, and it's been about a month since we've been in this story, so I want to recap it for you just a little bit before we get into the text. Um, as you might know already, Paul is standing trial now for the fifth time. He's already stood trial many times before, and it's because he was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem, he was beaten, he was almost killed, and then he was saved by the Roman government. And the charge was that he had taken a Gentile into the court. Now, up to this point in our text, that has been proven false already many times. And so at this point in our story, we're not even dealing with that charge anymore. 
The problem is, all of these rulers that put Paul on trial are so scared of a revolt from the Jews that they're not willing to set Paul free, even though he is clearly not guilty. And so they keep Paul in prison over and over again, so much so that Paul resorted to appealing to Caesar. That he had decided that his only course of action was to say, listen, you're not giving me a fair trial here. The only thing I can do is appeal to Caesar. I want to go present my case before Caesar. But this left Festus, the Roman procurator, in a very difficult position because now he was sending a prisoner to go see Caesar, but he didn't have any accusation to bring against him. There was no charge, right? Because he'd been found not, not guilty of everything. So how do you send a prisoner somewhere to see Caesar, the, the emperor of the land, and say, well, here he is. You try and figure out what he did because we don't know. Tough situation to be in. But thankfully for Festus, Agrippa, King Agrippa shows up. And Agrippa is thought of as the, the expert in Judaism among Rome. And so when he shows up, Festus says, Hey, Agrippa, can I, can I get your advice on this for a second? I have this prisoner, his name's Paul. This is kind of what, I've, what has happened so far. But I, don't, I just don't get it. I don't understand what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is resurrected. What is that all about? What's going on here? And so Agrippa is very curious, and so he says, listen, is there any chance that I can get Paul to stand before me and that I can judge him? And so Paul, who's already appealed to Caesar, willingly sets himself before this new trial before King Agrippa. And so Paul begins, and and I want you to get a feeling of the contrast between these two groups of people before we begin. You have Agrippa on one hand, who walks in, the Bible says he walks into the courtroom with great pomp. He's a pompous man. He is full of himself. He's conceited. He wants to make sure everybody knows and celebrates his greatness. And he walks into the room with his sister, the woman who he's having an adulterous, incestuous relationship with, on his arm. And they walk up as though they're going to now judge the Apostle Paul. And they walk in there with Festus as well. And, and again, Festus is just an, another wicked sinner who is a Roman judge. And so we have, we have this on one side, these men who are just conceited and sinful and living for themselves and living for this world and living for power and, and so just self-indulgent. And then on the other hand, you have Paul who is brought in in chains and prison clothes and he's given his life to give these people, men that are sinners like Agrippa and Festus and Bernice to give them the truth of the gospel. But he comes in humbly. There's no ceremony. There's, no pe- there's nobody that is shouting for joy when he walks in the room. Nobody's impressed with Paul. And so he walks in the room and he's given the opportunity now to defend himself. And it's amazing that Paul spends almost no time defending against any accusation that Jews have made. What Paul does is he breaks it down immediately in verses 6 to 8 what he's really being accused of, what the Jews really don't like about him, and that is that he believes that the Messiah has come, he believes in the hope of the Messiah, and he believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. That is what Paul stands on, that is, that is the truth that he's proclaiming, and that is why the Jews hate him so much. And so he declares that truth, and then he goes on and he gives Agrippa some of the background to this. He explains how in the past he was one of the guys that was persecuting the church. He was one of the men that that hated the church, that was killing Christians and was throwing them in jail and doing all sorts of evil to these these people. But then Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And at that time he was gloriously saved. 
Christ saved him of his sin. He found his Savior in Jesus Christ. He understood the Messiah had come. And at that time, Jesus gave him a job to do. And we're going to start reading here in verse 16 of the job that Paul was to do that Christ gave him. Jesus speaking here says, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of the things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. See, Paul here is clearly saying, listen, it was Jesus who appeared to me and he is the one that sent me on the mission that I'm now trying to fulfill. He's the one that sent me to be a light to the Gentiles. He's the one that made me a minister of the gospel. And my goal is to show them that they need to repent, to turn from their self-righteousness, from trusting in themselves or their own gods, to turn from their own religion and to turn to God, to turn to Christ. That's his message. Repent. And then once you do that, once you put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation, then, and only then, you, you bring forth the fruit that is meat for repentance. You start living a life as though you're one that has repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. And that is a call for all believers. We are not to just say, I'm sorry, Jesus, save me, and then live a life however we want to. It's our job to to live a life that is meet for repentance. That is congruent with the fact that we've repented from our sin. And so that is his mission. And then he says in verses 21 to 23, For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing to both small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be first and should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and unto the Gentiles. And what Paul is doing here is he's he's making the point that not only did I experience this Festus, not only and Agrippa, not only did I did I see Christ risen from the dead, did he appear unto me, but I'm, my mission is the same thing that what the Old Testament says about Christ, what the prophets said, that the Messiah should come, that he would die, that he would be a servant. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, that he would be the suffering servant, that he would rise again from the dead, and that, that his death would be a light, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. All of this is from the Old Testament. All of this is from the prophets. What I'm doing is in line with the scripture that the Jews say that they believe. And for Agrippa, this was scripture that Agrippa said he believed as well. And so he's he's bringing in the word of God, his experience and the word of God. Then in verse 24, we have Festus, his outburst. He can no longer handle it says, and he thus spake for himself. Mid-sentence, Paul is speaking. He's delivering this message. I've got to tell you, for, for a pastor, this is like the, the worst case scenario. This is a nightmare in our eyes. He's in the middle of his sentence. He's at the peak of what he's trying to say. And then Festus has this outburst. He says with a loud voice. 
And the Bible says that so that we'll really get this picture of him screaming. He can't take it anymore. He can't sit there and quiet. In fact, Paul isn't even really sitting before Festus, right? He's supposed to be sitting before Agrippa. He's already had his turn before Festus, but Festus cannot hold himself anymore. What does he say? He says, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Listen, I understand that you're a smart guy. I understand that you've studied like crazy. You appear to be a very learned man. I get that. But all of this learning has made you insane. It's made you crazy. The word mania, which is used there, is where we get our name maniac. And in Latin, it's where we get lunatic. And so this is just, you're crazy, Paul. And isn't this how the world views much of Christianity today? It's crazy. What you believe is crazy. Now, think with me. What did, what did Festus believe? What were Festus' beliefs? Well, he practiced empirical worship, right? And so he worshipped the emperor as a god. And not only that, he worshipped a variety of other gods at the same time. Maybe not as much, maybe not at the same time, maybe for different things. But he, you know, if, if he needed, if he wanted a child, he'd go to one god. If he wanted a good crop for his land, he'd go to another god. If he wanted wisdom, he'd go to another god. This was how he lived his life. And so we might say, okay, let's compare one god to many gods, and one of them being a man named Caesar, Nero Caesar at the time. Which one makes more sense? Well, for us, we'd say it probably makes more sense to worship one god who's creator of all things, right? Here's the thing. We often think that these people worship their gods because they thought their gods were great, but I do not believe that was the case. Festus worshipped Nero. He worshipped the emperor because it produced, in his eyes, it produced wealth. It produced prosperity. And so Festus' god, see, because he worshipped emperor, because of, of what he did, he saw it as a his success and his power as a direct result of who he worshipped, right? And so he was worshipping God, his God, for what it would bring him on this earth. Success, wealth, prosperity. And if, if Nero, if the emperor was not the guy that would bring that, he would worship whoever else would. He did not think his God was great, he just knew that his God right now was giving him what he wanted. And so we worship that God. And so... It makes sense that a guy like this would look at Paul and think, Paul, you're crazy. Look what your God has got you. You got nothing. You're in jail. You've been beaten. You have no possessions. You have no power. You have no authority. You know, look at me on my beautiful throne and you're sitting there as my prisoner. I have power over you to do whatever you want. See, Festus looks at him. He says, Paul, you're a smart guy, but you're acting crazy. You're saying that somebody died and rose again and so you're supposed to follow him and love him and he's, he's creator of all and the only thing that he can get you in this life is to be a prisoner and beaten and persecuted? That, it's a crazy thought, isn't it? Now, that's how Festus viewed Paul. Let's see how Paul responds in verse 25. But he said, I am not mad. And I just love the confidence but, but the, the calmness that he responds in. I can picture Paul taking a moment, you know, hearing him call him crazy, make fun of him, say, Festus, with all due respect, 
I am not mad, most noble Festus. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness. He's not crazy. Paul understands that what he believes is truth, that it is historically accurate, that it's verifiable, that it is something that is reality. It happened in reality. And he knows that it is soberness. The word soberness could be sound or rational or reasonable. These are things that, this actually makes sense. My worldview, compared to your worldview, makes a lot more sense. In fact, I think Paul would think Festus is kind of crazy for living for this day when he knows that eternity is real, right? And so Paul looks at him and says, I'm not crazy, most noble Festus. He's kind, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's respectful, but he is confident in what he believes. And here we find the clash of the worldviews. We have one worldview that lives for today. We have one worldview that worships the gods that bring them success and wealth and prosperity. And we have the other worldview that worships Christ as the Savior who died and rose again and knows that that, that worship of Christ, that his devotion to Christ, that, that trusting in Christ for salvation is his only hope of eternal life. See, Paul has it right here. And Paul has it right because what he's saying is true and it's reasonable. Then look how he goes on. Paul is brilliant, and this is a brilliant answer. Verse 26. For the king... So so he's talking to Festus, who's the procurator, and Festus is the one that has the outbreak, but really he's standing trial before King Agrippa. And so he says, Festus, the king, the one who's supposed to be the, the Jewish expert, the king knows knoweth of these things, before before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for these things were not done in a corner. He says, listen, I'm not crazy. What I'm saying is true, it's reasonable, and not only that, the king knows what I'm talking about. The king that I'm standing before right now, he knows that the thing, that Jesus' miracles, that his death, that his resurrection, it wasn't hidden, it wasn't done in a corner, it wasn't a secret, everybody knows about it, the king knows about it, okay? You can go to the tomb, it's empty, you can talk to the witnesses, they're still alive, there's 500 of them at once that saw Christ alive. This is not a crazy thing, this is true, it's factual. The king knows what I'm talking about, it wasn't done in secret, this is reality. And so he says, the king knows, but then he goes on and says, King Agrippa... Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And I, I just, I have to picture Paul saying this, and I love how he says it. He says, okay, King Agrippa, he's, he's known, he knows about Jesus, he's heard the story. Okay? But King Agrippa, you believe the prophets. That's an obvious answer for Agrippa. He has to say yes, because he's supposed to be the, the, the Jewish leader here. He's the one that appoints the rulers for the Jewish temple. And so he says, you'd have to say yes. And then Paul looks at him with kind of a smirk and says, I know you do. I know you believe. And so what I'm saying to you, it should make a lot of sense. When I tell you about Christ, you should have to accept this as being truth because you know what the prophet said. What the prophet said is exactly what I'm saying. Verse 28. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. So here Agrippa realizes that he has to give an answer, and instead of giving 
an outright answer? Do you believe the prophets? He evades the question. He pushes that aside. He pushes the conviction aside. And he says, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Now listen, this verse is a little bit interesting because there's a lot of translations that say, um, do you think with such little words or few words you will persuade me to be a Christian. And there are commentators that, that, that believe that it should be almost, I'm almost persuaded. And there are some commentators that believe, no, it's just with, with very little persuasion. And the reason is because the word that is translated almost can also be translated and is elsewhere in Scripture as little. And so it's either a little bit of persuasion or it's I'm almost persuaded. And commentators aren't sure. But can I tell you something? I don't believe that's the point of the text. I believe the point of the text is for Agrippa realizing that Paul is trying to persuade him to be a Christian. See, Agrippa gets it. This is for him. He understands that, there is, that, that this is not just a message that was for the Gentiles far away, that it's not something that the Jews have been dealing with. This is something for him right now today. It's either I'm almost there or it's either I know what you're trying to do, but either way, he understands Paul is persuading him to be a Christian. And that tells us a lot about how Paul acted, doesn't it? Paul was not just giving a, a, an intellectual discourse. You know, he was not just saying, well, this is my view. You have whatever you want. Paul was presenting something that was absolute truth, and he was trying to persuade Agrippa to believe what he believed. Almost persuades me to be a Christian. And here we see in verse 29, Paul explains that yes, That absolutely is his goal. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds. Paul says, Agrippa, you got it. You know what I'm trying to tell you. This gospel is for you. In fact, it's not just for you. It's for every single person sitting in this room today. Everybody that hears my words, I want them to know Christ. I want them to be persuaded to be a Christian. I I wonder if we could ever say this about rooms that we're in. That, That we so desire for every person there to know Christ. Well, Paul did. He says, my goal is to see people come to Christ. And that's you, and that's small, and that's great, and that's everybody here today. I want you to know Christ. And he makes a joke. I like the joke. Except for these chains. You know, except, I want you to be just like me. I want you to be sold out for Christ. Except for these. You know, that'd be a good deal not to have these. Um, he's a funny guy. Verse 30. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor and Bernice, and they that sat with them. See, he, he, Agrippa gets it. He doesn't want to take any more of it. And so he stands up. And when he stands up, the trial is over. Everybody else stands up, and they leave. And later on, they have this conversation. When they had gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or bonds. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. And I think this is significant because what it shows us is that rather than Festus and Agrippa dealing with their own soul, rather than dealing with the conviction they felt, rather than dealing with the fact of Jesus, they decide to switch switch the whole thing over to well, we would have let Paul go free. This guy's not guilty of anything. He's just a little bit crazy. See, they don't get it. And so often, people evade the gospel. Yeah, I'm not going to deal with whether it's applicable to me. I just don't want to have anything to do with that. 
And the ironic thing about this is that while they're speaking about Paul's freedom of his chains, the only thing on Paul's heart is their chains to sin. Paul doesn't and didn't ever care about his own chains. His own freedom never crossed his mind. This whole discourse was about them being free from sin. All Paul cares about is their freedom, is their eternal life. And there are, there's so much in this passage, as Paul responds, that I think is relevant and applicable for us. Here we see the clash of worldviews. I believe Agrippa and Festus live for the here and now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15:32, Paul says this, What advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And what Paul is saying there is that if you don't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, if you don't believe it, then eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. Live life for today. And that is the worldview that these two men have. Agrippa and Festus, they believe that they should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's one worldview. And then we see Paul's worldview. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I live that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of his sufferings. The greatest thing that Paul could do with this life was to love and to serve Christ. And that's what he lived for. And, and knowing Christ, he understood, meant being a part of his sufferings. But he gladly was a part of his sufferings because everything else meant nothing to him. Paul was a guy who was willing to give up everything that everybody else thought was so important to pursue the one thing that he knew was most important, the only true important thing. And that was his relationship with Christ. And so that was his worldview. And so when we look at that, when, when, we, when we see Paul's worldview, and then we see the contrast of that worldview between the worldview of Agrippa and Festus, who said, we're going to do whatever we want. We're going to live in adulterous, incestuous relationships. We're going to pursue our own pleasure and our own, our own pride. Compared to Paul, doesn't that convict us? I mean, where are you in that spectrum? Are, are you living in this worldview of Paul, where you say that everything else is loss, Christ is the only gain, and that I'm going to pursue Christ no matter what it means? Are you with Paul when you say, all I want is for Agrippa and Festus and everybody in this room to be saved? That's all I want. Are you with Paul where you say, Jesus gave me this mission, the, the Great Commission, and I'm going to live my life to fulfill it? Or are you kind of like, oh yeah, I'll do that when it's convenient, and also I want to really, really enjoy today, because what if that's not true? I feel like we've we got these two worldviews that are so clear here in Scripture, and we're trying to mold them. And our Christianity is just, just a, it, it's a concoction that we've devised of the world's pleasure and the world's desires and our own and our own our own desires and and that of christ pursuing christ we want the best of both worlds it's impossible it really is impossible jesus said seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you your job is never to seek your own stuff it's always to seek the kingdom of god the reign of god in your life and to seek his righteousness that's it and so our last few moments together, I want to give you the two reasons that Paul gave to explain why his worldview was both true and rational. And the first one is this. Christianity is true. 
And we don't have much time on this, and I'd love to spend a lot of time on it, um, but we'll go through this very quickly. Uh, do you know that defining truth is not an easy thing to do? There's a lot of people that, that fight over what truth is. But one of the best definitions of truth that I've heard is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. Okay, that which corresponds to reality is truth. And I think, as far as biblically, that kind of makes sense. Things that are real are true. And what Paul is trying to argue for in his, in his uh, discourse here is he's trying to say what, what happened on the cross, it's, it's truth. It wasn't hidden from anybody. It happened. It was for real. It's historical. Jesus really is risen again. He really is alive today. He really is Lord and Savior. He really believes it to be true. It's, this is a reality check for us. Do we really believe that that's true? And Paul said that, but listen, we, we often forget that there's a great deal of historical evidence that backs that up. And that's what Paul was doing here. He was saying, look at the historical evidence. It's true. Okay? It wasn't done in secret. Well, we have... 500 people at once seeing Christ, right? We have 10 at least appearances of Christ post-resurrection recorded in the Gospels by eyewitnesses. And not only do we have all these eyewitnesses recording the Gospels, we have those eyewitnesses and the disciples whose lives were completely changed from cowards to the most bold men alive who died for their faith because of the one event, the resurrection of Christ. If the resurrection didn't happen, then what was it that transformed those men? See, we have that. It's real. And not only have that, we have external sources by people like the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, uh, Lucian, and many other external sources that reference Christ and his resurrection and his death, and, and even details of it. I mean, it's historically accurate. It's historically valid. A man named Professor Thomas Arnold, he is the author of the famous book, history of Rome, and he's the chair of modern history at Oxford University. Big school, important school. He said, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those things which have been written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of the fair inquirer than that great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Historically, it's a reality. It's truth. It's verifiably true. Paul not only points, though, to the history, he points to the prophecies, doesn't he? He says, you believe the prophets, right? And all of us have to deal with that. The reality of the fact that, like Jesus' birthplace, that his mother would be a virgin, uh, how he would die, the fact that they would cast lots for his garments, the fact that the price of his head would be 30 pieces of silver, uh, uh, the, the method of death, the crucifixion, which was unknown when it was prophesied, all of those things, over and over again, his, his resurrection, the fact that he would be killed between two criminals and that he would be put into a, a rich man's grave, over and over again, we see these wonderful prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ, and we have to deal with that. It must be true, because nobody prophesies with that kind of accuracy and that kind of specificity, right? And so the prophets demonstrate that it's real. It's not a secret. Go check the tomb. It's empty. And the eyewitnesses say so. The prophets prophesied it. It's real. 
So Christianity is true, but number two, Christianity is reasonable. And living the Christian life that Paul lived is reasonable in light of the evidence. See, Paul's worldview wanted us to understand, he wants us to understand that the way he lived, it wasn't just for him. He wasn't just some guy who was called to be a crazy Christian and everybody else is supposed to be just a little bit lukewarm. Right? That, that, that wasn't Paul's, Paul's philosophy when he was discipling people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. When he says we, he's talking about we believers. We look, we focus, we, we care about the things which are not seen, the things which are eternal. He says, for the things which are seen are temporal. They're, they're, they're going to stop. They're not eternal. They're just here and now, and they're gone in no time. They're temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. What do we focus this life on? I hope we focus this life on things that are eternal. Because nothing else will last. If Jesus is alive, if eternity is real, if heaven and hell truly exist, then there is only one rational way to live. And when Paul stood up with confidence and said, Most noble Festus, I want you to know I'm not crazy. What I do and what I believe, it's true and it's reasonable and it makes sense and it is how all believers should live. It, it, it makes sense. And it's not just for Paul, it's for us too. Here's my point. Paul's, Paul's life, it was based on truth. It was based on rationality. And we often think of him as this crazy, zealous Christian, and we shouldn't. He should be the example of how all believers should live, sold out for Christ, living for eternity. The problem is this. If, if Paul were to assess most of our lives, I think he would say that we're a little bit crazy. I think he would have a lot of questions for us. I think Paul would wonder why we live for this world and only talk about the next. I think he would wonder why we continue in the sin that we say Christ died for. I think he would wonder why we say love, that we love God, but then we don't even love our brother. I think he'd ask us why does it seem like we don't care where our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers spend eternity. Why does it seem like we don't care? I think he would wonder what is so alluring about this world that we cling to it. We cling so tightly to the things of this world rather than knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I think Paul would think we're a little bit crazy. I don't think the Christianity that, that many of us live, and listen, I feel like I'm being really mean tonight, and I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to point out some things that I see that they're, they're, they're wrong in my own life. Why do I live this way? I mean, it seems like it makes so much sense the way Paul answered it, right? It's true. It's reasonable. It makes sense. Just live it. Just, just, just do what makes most sense. Christ is alive, so live for him. He's the Savior, so tell people about him. Be willing to suffer because this life isn't it. Why are you clinging so tightly to the things of the world? All of it, it makes so much sense. So, why is it so hard? In the late 1800s, uh, a clergyman by the name of Bishop Wright said in one of his sermons that it was impossible for mankind to fly. Flight, he said, is reserved for the angels. But then, on December 17th in 1903, 
his oldest son, Wilbur Wright, took his seat in the first power-driven plane ever built and was airborne at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina for 12 seconds and 120 feet. There are many, his father included, that thought he was crazy for pursuing what he thought would be a reality. But he did. And now we look back at him and we see a hero. And there were many in Paul's day, and there has always been many, who thought that Christians were crazy because they pursued Christ at all cost. Over and over again, history is filled with martyrs and people saying that they're crazy for going to their death with Christ in their lips. Here's the truth. They're heroes. They live the life that they were supposed to live, that we are all called to live. True sanity lies with the Pauls of this world, those who build their lives on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.